welcome to series three of my podcast, Innovation, where we get to hear stories and experiences of incredible women from diverse backgrounds and experiences in science and technology. Our conversation gives us insights into some incredible innovations, but we also get to relate. Because here on Innovation, I give women a platform to be seen and heard, because this exact conversation is in video format on YouTube. And honestly, every single episode is inspiring and uplifting because what we hear about is what they've learned along their life journeys, both personally and professionally. This episode is slightly off the usual format because this week I got to speak on a panel at Oxford University for the Unique Plus Graduate Programme. My fellow panellists were Dr Tom Crawford and Dr Sagida Beebe and we were there to discuss our experiences of doing a PhD. Unique Plus is a fantastic six-week program that gives people an insight into what it's like doing postgraduate research and everyone on that program tends to be from underrepresented groups or disadvantaged backgrounds and honestly it was such a privilege to be able to share our experiences of doing a PhD and the conversation gets really personal and is often inspiring and uplifting which is just what we like on innovation. So I ended up recording the whole 90 minutes of our panel discussion it was a very last minute decision, so the sound isn't great, but I really wanted to share these insights with you. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to series three of my podcast, Innovation, where we get to hear stories and experiences of incredible people in science and technology. Not only will you get insights into some fascinating innovations, but you may also even relate to their stories, especially if you're a little unconventional or non-conforming yourself. As with all science and technology, what these people do for a living has a real impact on all of our lives and we often don't realise it. But here on Innovation, I'm also giving other people a platform for them to be heard and for us to be inspired and uplifted by what they've learned along their life's journeys, both personally and professionally. This week, I'm on a panel with Dr Tom Crawford and Dr Sagida Beebe. And myself and we are talking to graduates from the Unique Plus graduate program which is a six-week program at Oxford University where the graduates get an opportunity to do research and get an insight into what it's like doing a PhD. So we were on this panel to give our experiences about doing a post-grad qualification i.e a doctorate and it ended up being a really fascinating conversation because um, even though there was a fellow fluid dynamicist on the panel, which is really unusual because there aren't too many of us, we all had very different experiences of research. Dr. Sagida Bibi worked on the AstraZeneca vaccine. She works at Oxford Vaccines. And so her insights and just her background and her experiences and Tom's background and experiences, we were all just so diverse and we were all offering our perspective and takes on what it's like doing that kind of in-depth research. And we get personal and we share 
our unusual choices in life. And uh, we take questions from the audience. So it's 90 minutes of the full conversation at Oxford University this week. Enjoy. So first up, we've got Dr. Tom Crawford, who's a early career teaching fellow at St. Edmund Hall and a uh, science and maths communicator on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Over to you, Tom. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, uh, I have a very unique position um, at the university, I was just explaining to my fellow panellists. Um, so my current job is um, I'm an early career fellow in teaching and outreach, which basically means take your typical academic position that you sort of picture it in your head and like remove all the time you spend doing research and instead I do outreach stuff. So I spend about half my time teaching undergraduate students uh, maths at St Edmund Hall, which is literally just down the road, about 50 metres. Um, and then the other half of my time, I'm sort of left to my own devices to do outreach, whatever I feel that is, um, which means doing YouTube videos, um, doing talks at schools, podcasts, whatever I basically feel like doing, um, which is really nice. Uh, and I feel very fortunate that um, the college um, St. Edmund Hall have like given me this position as like a trial of like this hybrid idea between teaching and outreach. Um, now in terms of my PhD and how I ended up doing this, so I did uh, maths undergrad for four years with a master's um, and then I did a PhD um, also in maths, this was in um, applied maths um, at Cambridge um, and I was working in fluid dynamics. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I started my PhD, I felt like I wanted to continue in academia forever. It seemed great that I could get paid to keep doing a subject I enjoyed doing. Um, and then a few years into my PhD, I began to realize maybe research wasn't actually what I wanted to do after all. Uh, and I think this is fairly normal for most people doing a PhD. You reach some point where you kind of question, should I be doing this? Um, and I was quite fortunate in the, around that time, sort of two years in, I um, applied for an uh, internship, which was a two-month placement um, with the BBC in Cambridge, uh, working in the science journalism team, uh, making a science radio program uh, with a group called The Naked Scientists. It's a really good podcast uh, for science communication. So I spent two months doing that, took a little break in the middle of my PhD, and absolutely loved it, and sort of, I think, then realised that was what I wanted to do. Um, so when I finished my PhD, I spent a year working full-time uh, for the Naked Scientists. And then I realized maths doesn't really work on the radio because you need to visualize things, whether it's a graph or a number or an equation. Uh, so I then started playing around with videos um, and started making YouTube videos, having zero experience like with any form of camera. Um, I had to borrow my parents' camera, which was terrible and about 30 years old. But that was where I started. Uh, and then uh, after doing that in my spare time whilst working full time, I then realized that I missed doing actual maths, but didn't want to go back to research. So I kind of found this middle ground of getting a teaching position um, at university. So I came back to Oxford uh, to have a pure teaching position, a lectureship, um, and then sort of spent my free time um, doing YouTube stuff and unfortunately that grew um, and then I was able to get the job I currently have as of two years ago um, where all of the outreach and the YouTube stuff is now officially part of my job. 
So it's a very long and convoluted story, <laughs> but I'll happily answer any questions about any parts of it um, that people may have, but I'll shut up for now. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, okay, so next up we have uh, Dr. Shinji Samara, uh, who's a mechanical engineer, uh, TV producer, presenter, author, and um, yeah, good exploration. Thank you. Um, it's weird to be sitting next to a fluid dynamicist. I don't meet many of them. Um, but we've actually had a very different um, path into fluid dynamics, I've just learned. Because um, I went to Brunel University and I did uh, a BNG in mechanical engineering. And the reason why I chose Brunel is because um, they did mechanical engineering with a slant on building services. Um, so all the mechanical and electrical services in buildings like ventilation systems and uh, lifts and things like that. Um, but it was essentially straight mechenge to begin with and then with a specialism in um, buildings. And what I loved about that uh, degree was fluid dynamics, so looking at how air flows in enclosed spaces. Um, if I backtrack a little bit more, uh, the reason why I chose engineering, which is not typical for women, because um, I'm a passionate advocate for encouraging more women into engineering, and I know that the numbers are really terrible, something like 12% of engineers are female. Um, but my dad's an engineer in building services, and he wanted, he had big plans for me to take over his consultancy practice so that was the plan that I was going to study what I needed to study and then take over his business one day um, but while doing the the, the BNG I fell in love with fluid dynamics I just loved the idea that mathematics could help you to visualize something that we don't normally see because fluids gases and liquids tend to be invisible to us but using algorithms we could kind of bring it to life and make it really visual and I loved that so once I qualified with my um, BNG, I wanted to stay in academia. I mean, the truth is, I wasn't really ready to go into, into industry and to work and be a grown-up. I kind of wanted to keep the academic thing going. Um, but I was a bit worried about doing a PhD because um, what I had in my head was the stereotype of doctoral students being kind of stuck in academia and not really being in the real world. And I wanted to be in the real world, but not quite 100%. And so I had all of that going on in my head. Um, and so I decided to do an ENGD, an engineering doctorate at Brunel in environmental technology. And at the time, this is going back a really long way, um, Brunel University was connected to the University of Surrey and it was all, ENGDs were funded by the EPSRC. So um, it was, there was a match, you know, Brunel University loved fluid dynamics. Um, my doctorate was on dynamic thermal modeling using computational fluid dynamics. Um, and I was based in industry for four years. So um, a company sponsored my doctorate. So they paid for my university fees and they paid me a salary. And while I was doing my research for four years, I was on an employee contract where I was developing their software. They kept the intellectual property at the end of my doctorate and I walked away 
with two little letters before my name and then an HD. Um, and, and it was really good, it was a really good setup because I basically learned how to be in industry, which I think is really important for engineers. I think the sooner they get exposure to, to being in the working world and actually applying their engineering knowledge, the better. Um, having said that, uh, I took a very academic route into engineering and I think as a result of that I didn't really get the engineering bug um, that maybe apprenticeships give you. Uh, it doesn't apply here um, but I think apprenticeships are a great way into engineering for anyone that feels like they're not mathematically or you know physics inclined. Um, so yeah four years on contract with my company, which was a software company that made uh, CFD software. They wanted to take it from being static analysis to being dynamic, and so that's what all my research was about. Um, and it was just, it was a really, really great experience. I love being in industry, I love being an employee, but I also love being cocooned in research and academia it was kind of the best of all worlds, plus I was getting paid a really nice salary, so I kind of felt like I was getting a taste of the real world. Um, I ended up needing another six months to dot the I's and cross the T's of my thesis, so in the end it took me four and a half years to, to finish my doctorate. And um, once I did that, it was, it was 2004, so it's a really long time ago, um, but I came out of university and I felt like uh, I wanted to really um, explore what I want to do with my career. Um, I felt like everything was driven by parental expectation and societal expectation um, coming from, you know, an ethnic background. We can go into that if that's of any interest to any of you in the audience, but um, I needed a bit of time to discover where my true passions were. And when I was doing my doctorate, I became a total recluse. I was just eating, sleeping, and breathing my research for four and a half years. And I loved what I did, but honestly, I needed to widen my horizons because everything had become just about CFD. Um, so I kind of, like a massive pendulum, swung the other way and I threw myself into communication because I had lost the ability to communicate. Like I, I really had like kind of social anxiety, I think, towards the end of my doctorate. Like I, people scared me and I had three computer screens and that was kind of my world. Um, and so I started giving talks in schools. Um, the stories much more detailed but just to summarize i gave talks in schools um, i was taking an enigma machine around to schools and explaining how it worked and the basis of coding and all of that um, and i got the bug for communication uh, i loved speaking to audiences about technical things and so uh, one of the things about the ngd is they, they you do a bunch of courses i think i did 13 additional courses over the four years and one of them was talking to the media. So I learned in one week how to speak on radio and TV and how to communicate technical subjects. Uh, it took me one week to figure out how to summarize my doctorate in a way that a general audience could understand. Um, 
And I realised that it's a real skill to be able to speak um, in the media. And from then on, I just thought, you know what, I love doing this so much. I'm going to go into it full throttle. And long story short, I ended up in television um, talking about science and tech on TV. And I've worked for a variety of different networks, including the BBC. I moved to LA for five years and, and lived and worked there for Al Jazeera America. Um, I've done the most incredible stories um, thanks to sort of communicating innovation to a mass audience. Um, and I do miss engineering, so I, I totally understand Tom's um, thing of wanting to go back into maths. But I think I've gone too far down the, the media um, sort of route to now get back into academia. But the joy I have now is speaking to scientists and technologists and engineers and um, people who are innovating and learning about what they're doing. And my job is translating their very technical understanding of what they do into something that we can all appreciate. I feel like I'm a bit of a translator. Um, and that's what I do full time today. And that's led to sort of books. I'm about to finish my seventh book. Because uh, one of the, the major things that has been common in all my career journey is that uh, people of colour and women have been very underrepresented in engineering. Maybe if that was, had been different, I may have stayed in the industry, but because I didn't see anyone like me, I felt very uncomfortable um, as a fluid dynamicist in a company where I was the only woman. And uh, I've given loads of talks to young women all over the world about being in engineering. Um, and year upon year, I didn't really see any change. And I just thought, how can I really make an impact? How can I really help to move the needle? And, you know, after a bit of soul searching, I realized that the reason why I got into engineering is because my dad's an engineer. And from young, it didn't seem abnormal for someone like me to be in engineering. It was only up until I was in industry that I realized that it was very unusual. So the six books that I've written to date are all aimed at young people to try and change the stereotype and to change the public perception of engineering because women can be engineers, people you know, of minority can be engineers and it, I'm really determined to not let anyone that goes to the lengths of getting qualified in engineering feel like they can't stay in engineering. So um, that's one of my sort of like things that I'm passionate about, as well as learning about loads of different innovation that I'm not an expert in. So that's what I do today. And um, again, like Tom, if you want to ask any questions on specific points, I'm really happy to answer them later. So thanks. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, next up, we have Dr. Saida Bibi, uh, who is a senior postdoctoral researcher uh, member of the Oxford Group. Okay, hi everyone. It's really nice to see you all here today. Um, so unlike my fellow, fellow panellists, I feel completely out of my comfort zone today because I do very little kind of communication work and talking about my career paths and, uh, and things like that. So excuse me if I come across as being nervous. Um, I really didn't know where to start, actually, when I was talking about my career path. Um, when I 
was growing up, um, I didn't really see women um, and people of colour. Um, I didn't have that kind of those kind of role models in my community. Um, I didn't know of any women who'd gone to university from my community. Um, so it was not something that I was kind of striving for or driving for or kind of motivated to kind of be doing. Um, I went to, you know, I did A-levels like most of you. Um, I think I pricked them pretty randomly. I don't really remember kind of having some kind of forethought of these are the A-levels I need to get to place B, you know, because a lot of people, a lot of kids these days are very kind of well thought out, well driven, know where their careers are going. That wasn't me. Um, so I, I went to university and I'd, I'd, I'd done bio, biology and chemistry um, at A-level, but I'd also done English literature, which was kind of the other extreme, which was my other kind of passion. So then I felt like I needed to make a decision about which route I was going to take. Um, and coming from the Asian community, you know, English wasn't considered to be like a good career path. Um, it was, you know, what, 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 what were you going to be? Um, so I did pharmaceutical sciences um, for my undergrad um, in Birmingham at Aston University. Um, it was a really fascinating degree, actually, and that's when I think I felt like I could kind of do something. I could help my community, I could help people. Um, so kind of the idea of going into research kind of penetrated my mind at that point. And it was a research orientated degree. Um, so it did that. Um, um, and by the end of it, I still really didn't have a clue what I was going to do with my degree. So. Uh, I'm not a really good careers advisor because I'm always like, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, yeah, so I got to my end of my degree and I, did, I was very unsure about what I wanted to do. I did know this much, you know, you didn't get into academia without a master's, you didn't get into academia without a DPhil you know, or a PhD. Um, but that kind of seemed unattainable at the time. It seemed like something other people did. It didn't seem like the kind of thing people did from my community all my family is, it, it was, you know, you went to work, it, that's what you did, you bought a house, you know, this is the kind of stuff that you did, um, got married, you know. Um, so um, when I left university, I went straight into work, really, um, and I went into industry, it's just kind of, so I, I, I maybe, you know, I won't get too complicated technical but like basically immunoassays that look at different like antibodies from different diseases as a company and I worked there for two years that's where I learned how to do lab science you know you don't learn bench science when you're at uni you learn a lot of theory and then you kind of realize how bad you are at science when you get into the workplace um, so I learned a lot of skills there but very similar to your experiences I think because I hadn't really thought about my career when when I was in industry, you realise that there are no, there are no people that look like you. You know, there's no people. You know, there are women, but I, I didn't really see people of colour when I was uh, working. Um, so I had very low confidence when I was doing my first job. I really didn't think I was very good, or you know, I found it very difficult to speak up. I found it very difficult to kind of think about progressing in the career pathway you know I worked hard like we had like I had a good work ethic um, so I did that for two years um, 
And then I had a family, so um, I needed to take a gap, so I had to take a break for two years. Um, and science at that time was very, um, um, not very easy for women to go back into work, you know, when you had kids. It's not like um, a lot of professions where you can do, you can do it part-time or there was flexible working. I found it very difficult to try and get back into a science career. Um, and so basically, oh, sorry, I've been trying to make this too long, but um, yeah, so I... Eventually I found a part-time job actually at Birmingham University as a research technician, so working with other postdoctoral researchers. And I think it was three years, it was a good three years because the job was good, it fitted in with my family life, I could drop my kids off at school and do a couple of hours every day and things like that. Um, but it did ignite my passion for research. So. It was a three-year contract, and by the time I'd got to the end of my three years, I had a two-year-old son and I had a seven-year-old daughter. Um, and I applied, so I needed to apply for a job. But I also saw a PhD that, you know, while I was looking for these jobs, I was just like, oh, that's fantastic, it's a fantastic PhD. Um, I don't know, I applied for it. So I only applied for one PhD. Um, so. <laughs> I don't know if that's great advice, it's probably the worst advice, but it was interesting, I had the right experience for it, I didn't have a master's and I didn't have the best, I didn't have a first class degree, but I just thought I'd just go for it, um, I did that and yeah, I did my, I did my PhD, um, I actually got the PhD okay before I got the, the job that I'd applied for, so luckily I took the PhD, um, it was difficult because Obviously, it's a massive pay cut, you know, PhD student, you don't get paid massively for that. Um, we had family. Um, but I think it was the best decision I ever made because that was the first decision I made for myself. You know, this was something that I wanted to do and I did it and it was a really great three years um, of just, I don't know, learning what I wanted from life, learning a little bit more about myself. Um, it, didn't, it wasn't the most, I wouldn't say like I you know, published any great papers out of it or anything, but I learned a lot about myself. Um, and then after my PhD, um, I started applying for jobs. And suddenly you're in this weird position because you almost become overqualified for some jobs and then jobs are very difficult to get. There's fewer jobs, you become very niche, you know, because of the PhD that you've done. So was it easy finding a job after my PhD? I want to be honest, like it wasn't. I was kind of looking for about a year, a year and a half maybe. Um, but then I got a job here at the Oxford Vaccine Group and it wasn't as a postdoc um, position. So it was in clinical trials and immunology. I didn't have the right background. Well, I had a little bit of the right background. I thought enough from the industry work that I'd done to go and do an interview and um, I came in at a position where you only needed a degree, okay? So the position I applied for wasn't a postdoc position. But I've worked there for seven and a half years and I basically just built, built up my career quite slowly because I had to build up my confidence to do that, you know, to be able to kind of... I didn't think I was a, good enough to be a postdoc for the University of Oxford. Like, there's just no way. I'm from Birmingham, I'm from a very inner city area. And um, yeah, so I've been there seven and a half years and now I'm a senior postdoctoral researcher. I basically do 
do academic research, but my job is very split now. Um, I worked on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine trial um, um, to help deliver the vaccine as part of like the team. And um, my job is kind of a 50-50 split. I, it's, it's a lot more management now, where I'm like supervising PhD students, kind of managing research assistants, working on clinical trials. and. Um, but also I try to do a little bit of research as well um, and like kind of novel things that are happening, but that's where I am today. Did you think about other things before doing the PhD or what other things did you think about if you get more concrete? Um, yeah. Is that to everybody? Or? Yes, it's, okay. it's um, I didn't know what a PhD was until the second year of my undergraduate degree. Uh, I had no idea that you could continue to study and be paid to do so. And as soon as I discovered that was a thing, I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, so uh, I was fortunate enough that I was obviously working hard and doing well enough in my studies that I was able to do that. Um, so I'm sort of, yeah, around sort of about as I say, the end of my second year um, of my four-year degree, I figured out, this is amazing, I definitely want to try and do this. Um, and so I applied for three different programs, I think. And I was planning to apply for more, um, but I got, um, I heard back from one of them quite quickly, which was fortunately uh, successful. So I kind of stopped and didn't have to think about other things. Um, but before I knew what a PhD was, I definitely saw myself going and working, doing something related to maths or finance um, or something around that. Uh, and I was excited about that until I realized I could just keep doing maths and someone would pay me. Um, for me, once I discovered that was a thing, it was sort of the only thing that I wanted to do, really. I think I answered that earlier, but um, what can I add? Uh... I think um, it's always really important to really know what you find interesting because um, I've met a lot of PhDs, particularly in science, uh, along my career and I'm always in awe of people that choose a PhD subject that will be in their life for their whole career. Um, so an example, you know, I was doing a TV show where all of us were, were PhDs and we were kind of reporting on different technologies. And um, one of my colleagues, she did something on, she was a neuroscientist and she did something on like tobacco and addiction. And, and it, was, it was something that really, really interested her. Like she wanted to spend four years studying that. Um, and she also had her, she also had like the foresight to think about what would happen once she had qualified. Um, she knew she wanted to go into communications, so she wanted to choose a PhD that would be a subject that many people would want to talk about for the foreseeable. Um, whereas when I chose my doctorate, I was just really fascinated by CFD. Like I just, I didn't think about a future in it. I just was like, I want to learn more about it. Um, and now that I'm in 
media, I do look back on my doctorate and I think that was a really hard doctorate to do, to then end up in media, you know, and I don't regret doing it, but it was really, really hard work. Um, and, you know, it was really interesting. And, and, and actually, like during COVID, CFD has been used a lot to kind of simulate how COVID travels around rooms. Um, and so it's been, you know, but I'm, I've, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that um, just choose your subject wisely if you are going to do a doctorate because it's, it's like having a child. Like, you know, it's like giving birth and, uh, to, to something, you know, you're contributing something to the world and it's, it's something that has to be really close to your heart. Um, yeah, so when you're thinking about, you know, doing one, uh, choose wisely. Yeah. I don't know, I feel like maybe you've already kind of answered the question a bit as well, but um, I think by the time I'd chosen my PhD, I felt very happy like it's almost like this idea that you'd kind of found something, you'd, you'd kind of found the right place that you, were, you needed to be at. Um, um, and, and I realised very much that I wanted to kind of do medical research and help society and help the world like with something. And I've just been very fortunate, I think, in being able to have a job that is related actually to my PhD very closely and it's, it's, it's something that I enjoy and you know it's something that I've, I've made the right decisions by not actively trying to make the right decisions if that kind of makes sense. Uh, Since you're both sort of doing more communications now, is there anything looking back at your PhD that you would have added to what to the sort of things you were doing? Would you have taken other classes? Would you recommend to sort of broaden whatever you're doing? As I say, I think the thing that Shinny mentioned about um, doing that week-long class about how to talk about your research and talking to the media, I think if anything like that's available, that's insanely helpful. Um, so the, the one year when I was working at the Naked Scientists, um, so kind of similar to, to what Shinny was saying her job is now, we would look at what research was coming out that week in the main journals, find what we thought was interesting, pitch it to our editor. If he liked it, we'd then contact the author and have a phone call with them. And that was to figure out, could they talk about it in an understandable manner? And the amount of times you have a really, really interesting piece of research and the researcher is just not able to actually communicate it. We'd have to sort of um, cancel various guests that we wanted on the show and various stories we wanted to cover because the researcher wasn't able to um, despite our best attempts um, and trying to coach them through it, just wasn't able to talk about it to a non-specialist um, audience. So I think anything like that is super valuable. Um, I don't remember the opportunity to do anything specifically like that um, during my PhD, but my supervisor was very kind enough to let me take two months off to go and do the placement, which is where I basically learned how to do that. Um, do interviewing other people about their work, you then learn how to do it, how to explain your own work um, as a result of that. Uh, 
but I picked my PhD topic because I thought it was a really interesting question. Um, and then only once I'd finished it and a few years after I'd finished it, did I realize that I could actually reframe the entire piece of research in a way that would make the general public actually care about what I was doing. So the original question we were trying to answer, I used to describe it as, uh, where does river water go when it enters the ocean? Which possibly is vaguely interesting, but the way to really get people's attention is to say, 80% of pollution in the ocean comes from the land, it enters through rivers, so if we understand where river water goes, we know where pollution goes. Super valuable piece of information, and obviously very hot topic around plastic pollution and different things in the ocean. Um, but that was something that I didn't realize till after I'd done my PhD, that framing it kind of in that way. Um. Yeah, coming off the back of that, um, my title was Dynamic Thermal Modeling Using Computational Fluid Dynamics. But when I did that week course, um, I realized that actually my doctorate was all about reducing sick building syndrome. And sick building syndrome is, uh, is a thing. You know, particularly in high-rise office blocks that we have in the city where um, air doesn't circulate in a healthy way and you get pockets of stagnant air that's warm and moist and can breed bacteria. Um, Really sort of like very um, COVID-relevant. But it's the same thing that happened in pyramids. You know, tombs were shut for hundreds of years and the air in there just became this breeding ground for bacteria. So when the archaeologists opened the door for the first time in ages, they breathed this toxic air and dropped dead from that. Um, so that week long that I took to find the sort of um, the hooks, the media hooks um, in my research was really essential. It made me realise that communication is such an important tool for any doctorate, for, just for life, like being able to communicate is really, I think it's really important. Um, But you know, so is research and and being in the lab or kind of being behind the scenes doing the actual work. Um, So, you know, I think it's about where you feel your interests lie. So if you want to be at the front, on the front end communicating the stuff, I think it's really important to build up those skills. Whatever it is that you want to do, get those, get those skills, you know, try and find a way to, to develop the skills that you need to do the job you want to do. I um, can't remember the original question, but that's my answer. That's pretty good. Thank you very much. Um, so, so you did your um, yeah, I mean, maybe kind of touching upon what both the speakers have said is um, so as scientists you know when you're doing a research degree you're in the lab and you know sometimes you're in the lab for long hours working by yourself on kind of assays and things but I think the Covid pandemic um, and being involved in the production of the vaccine it was a, a realisation actually of how important communication is because you can have the most fantastic vaccine in the world but if you can't convince people to take that vaccine what you have is worthless and I think all of you must have watched 
this play out in the media, you know, like side effects, you know, people's fears, you know, oh, it got produced too quickly, you know, all of these things that, you know, people were saying. And the only people that could rebut that were, you know, were scientists that really didn't have much communication. Um, you know, it was coming from, you know, people that are not normally, you know, on the front, on the front line in trying to convince people that our science is good, you know, the work is good, and how to suddenly make people understand, you know, what, what's, what's a clinical trial, you know, how many people do you need before you're convinced that it's safe, how many people do you need before you're convinced that it's effective, um, and suddenly, you know, and I think one of the amazing things about the, the vaccines is that, you know, I'd go home and my kids would be telling me stuff that they'd, you know, seen on the media and, and they'd learn what, you know, I don't know, you know, why we needed antibodies from vaccines and things like that. You know, it's just suddenly the, the communication of scientists, I think in the last, I don't know, you might disagree, but I thought in the last kind of two, two, two and a half years has become paramount and it's, it, it became very clear to me actually how important it was to do that job right because every time someone did it wrong, people were dying. You know, if we weren't convincing ethnic minority people to take up the vaccine, there were, you know, massive repercussions to that. It wasn't just about, oh, scientists aren't very good at talking. Suddenly it's like, if you can't convince people, it's not enough that we were doing the assays on the desk, you know, on the bench. It was, you know, there was a whole, there was a whole new side of science that got played out in the media. And I think during my PhD, if I could, you know, go back and kind of say that I needed to do anything better, it was... One is confidence and two is communication. I think I've always had a problem with confidence, you know, kind of believing in just, you know, everyone has this kind of idea that they're not good enough, but I think from my background and the communities that I come from, it's, it, I always had that problem, and much better now. Um, so I think if you could go back, it's be confident and kind of be, learn how to communicate well to people. Thank you so much. Um, so maybe changing the topic a little bit um, from that. Um, so a PhD is very much about hard work and uh, studying long hours, getting your results, and um, yeah, hopefully kind of seeing it through to the end. Um, but at the same time, I think there are some quite unhealthy kind of expectations um, that PhD should be kind of the only thing that you think about it should take over uh, your entire life and it should be your world um, what would the three of you say were kind of um, highlights and kind of memorable moments of your phd's kind of outside of research speaking at conferences and picking really cool places to go to speak at the conference <laughs> Um, so I remember the very first meeting um, that um, we had as new PhD students in the master department um, in Cambridge, the sort of like main um, administrative person um, said that uh, each of you as a maths PhD student um, will have funding to go to three conferences guaranteed over the course of your PhD. If you were speaking at more than that, then you could apply for additional funding, but it wasn't guaranteed. And um, so I sort of, quite cheekily, I felt, put my hand up and said, 
do they like does this cover where the conference is so as in if i go to a conference in london versus i go to a conference in hawaii like is that the same thing uh, and they were like yes uh, so I, I went to san diego new orleans and san francisco as my three choices of conference uh, they were all fluid dynamics conferences and i was speaking at all of them uh, but that was something i sort of found quite fun was like picking out worthwhile conferences to speak at but also places i wanted to visit so i'd go and do the conference for like the week and then i'd have one or two weeks holiday around that so that was one of my favorite things about being a phd student was actually having the opportunity to travel around the world and um and also get to obviously talk about the research but like the highlight of being able to visit these cool places uh was something i didn't realize was actually built into most phd's until i actually started doing it well wow. I want to know which fluid dynamic conferences you went to because a lot of my conferences were ventilation conferences and I think the most exotic place was Naples, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, conference is definitely one of the highlights of that whole experience. Um, but I have to say, the way you described doing a doctorate was you described my doctorate. Like, I had no life. Like, I, I literally was just head down for four and a half years um and uh gosh i mean i wouldn't want to do that again um but i honestly didn't know any other way like for me you know seven and a half years in total because it was three years for the undergrad and then like those seven and a half years i studied like non-stop i was obsessive about my work um partly because i really enjoyed it but partly because I just, I, I absolutely had to get a first and I had to get through it all. Um, and I didn't know how to do work-life balance. So um, once I finished my undergrad, I had like three months of partying and then I started my doctorate and I was doing a little bit of partying in the beginning and I remember my supervisor said to me, if you carry on like this, you're never gonna finish. And that scared me so much that I just shut everything down um, on the personal sort of front and I just went hook, line and sinker into my research. Um, and I don't regret it because, uh, I don't know, like I've, I've, had a really, I've had a really great experience of a career um, and I really do feel that there's a time and place for everything. And for me, uh, getting a good education was my number one priority and I didn't want anything to distract me from that. Um, and once I qualified, I kind of went a bit all over the place. As I said, like just trying to figure out what I wanted to do in, for the rest of my life. But yeah, for those years I was laser focused. So I'm not gonna flower it up like I was just total. Yeah, so, went through. So, no non-academic <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, actually quite similar. When I did my PhD, the conferences was the first time I really travelled. Do you know, before that, I hadn't really travelled at all. Um, that's actually the truth, uh, which is quite funny now when I look back at it. And I had a fantastic supervisor who kind of encouraged these international conferences. Um, so I went from, like, the only place I travelled to was where my grandparents were. So for Pakistan, I'd been 
And that was the only kind of holiday my parents thought was a holiday. You know, you'd go to see your grandparents. Um, so when I did my PhD, we, we went to America, we went to China, you know, we went to Europe. There, there were so many opportunities to travel and it really opened up my whole world, you know, of kind of traveling. So that was a part of my PhD, I think, that really helped enrich my life a lot. Um, and in terms of work-life balance, I really didn't have a choice because I had kids. <laughs> So I needed to come home and remember that I had kids. So, you know, you'd go at, you know, I'd be there at nine o'clock and I'd, I'd do like a normal work day. Like I couldn't really do like late evenings or weekends and things like that. So I had to be really quite focused in the kind of time that I had and not kind of mess around in, 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 during that time. Um, the funniest kind of things I remember from my PhD is when I was writing up um, so I'd got all these papers printed out and they were like all over the living room floor and I was writing up and my daughter came home from school and she was like eight and she flung open the door and she looked at the room and she says, I can't live like this. <laughs> and I was the one who was getting stressed about writing up my thesis, right? And she, she says to her dad, can you give me my snacks? I need to have them upstairs in my room because the house is a mess. Um, so that's one of the things, and my son was so young actually that um, he couldn't pronounce PhD, so it was Poo HD. So if I had any idea that I was, you know, any idea of elevated status, that was like kind of, kind of um, yeah. So Lowe's, I think, difficult. It's difficult to do a PhD with family, kids. You, you know, it's hard to stay focused. You know, that things happen. You know kids get ill, you know, end up in hospital, you know, all sorts. So difficult, but worth it, you know, is what I'd say. Um, and I'd say to kind of women who have kids who want to do a PhD, I did my PhD when I was 31, right? So it's not like the normal age to do PhDs or kind of stuff. So I don't know, like just different times you can do it. You know, everyone's life is different. It doesn't mean that you have to follow like a normal route. Uh, to do things as well. That's kind of what I'd say. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, maybe kind of a similar question. Um, so obviously in your PhD you're going to meet a lot of important people who are going to, you know, influence you in a lot of ways and kind of shape how your career goes from there. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about that? And the important people that were part of your PhDs, maybe supervisors or um, or colleagues, and how they um, kind of shaped where you are now. Thanks, Tom. Um, my supervisor um, basically, um, I completely lucked out in the sense that I couldn't have actually picked a better supervisor. Uh, and I'm sure you've probably been told this, but pick your supervi supervisor, don't pick your project. Uh, 100% would be my top tip. Um, so <clears throat> I knew I wanted to do a PhD in fluids. I um, went and spoke to some of my tutors um, here, and one of them mentioned that Cambridge was really, really strong in fluid dynamics. So I went and looked up um, potential projects that they were suggested on their website um, and saw there was an experimental uh, department, experimental group, and I thought, that sounds like fun. I've never done experiments before in this kind of setting. That'll be nice to do a bit of equations and theory and a bit of experiments. Um, and then when I looked on the experimental page, there were 10 suggested projects, and the two that grabbed my attention the most were both with um, Paul Linden. So I just pinged him an email, 
and then ended up doing my PhD with him. But I didn't know much about Paul. Um, it turns out he's just like, how old would he have been when I started? He was like 67, right at the end of his career, previously had been like the head of the maths department in Cambridge and also over in San Diego. And he was just like the most laid back person I've ever met to this day. Like you'd come in and I'd be like stressed or like be like something wouldn't be working and he'd just be like, ah, we'll figure it out, it's fine. Like just, just so like calming and reassuring and was just like, it'll all figure itself out. He's like, I've been doing this for 50 years. You'll be fine, calm down, it's all okay. Um, and I didn't realize until after I finished my PhD, like how much of an influence, like the way he behaved and the way he was always like, we'll figure it out. Like just sort of that very like laid back nature um, I, th- I just found um, it's had a really big influence on sort of what I've done since and how I now teach my students and all of the YouTube stuff and various things that I do. Um, I think it's how I'm able to do a million things and it all be fine because <laughs> I just sort of hear Paul in my head being like, you'll figure it out. It's fine. Um, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Um, so for me, definitely my, my supervisor um, and I completely looked out because I, I didn't be, I, I figured out which projects I thought I'd be interested in and I did go and meet Paul and we had lunch um, on like a Saturday in Cambridge and just got on really well um, but yeah for me like the supervisor was just so so important um, in sort of actually not just guiding me academically but literally making me the person that I am today. So my experience is really different um, because doing an NGD you end up having two supervisors one industrial and one academic Um, and just to put things into context I qualified with my doctorate at the age of 24 which was you know super young Um, and and I think at that age I really needed a lot of direction and a lot of um, authoritative guidance and you know very contrasting to what you had Tom because the laid-back approach didn't work for me. I needed someone to really keep me in line because uh, I was all sort of young and impressionable. Um, and being female, I thought I'm going to go for an academic supervisor who is a woman because uh, she'll understand what it's like and maybe just kind of... I don't know. I was hoping it was going to be... Um, an easier relationship and actually she was so tough um, like she really kind of was very strict and no BS and you know so that was interesting um, and then my industry supervisor <clears throat> um, I think it was really nice having supervisors from both fields because you know, I didn't do a doctorate to be stay in academia or kind of ha- go in that direction. I did a doctorate because I knew I wanted to be in industry one day and I wanted to bridge the gap from academia into industry. So it was nice having this industrial supervisor because he really gave me an insight into what it's like to be an engineer working. Um, so that was really good. But it was often kind of like a balancing act between these um, two perspectives. Um, yeah. So uh, in terms of inspiration, 
I don't know. I, I've always followed, like I, I've always followed what feels right, and you know, I haven't necessarily had um, a person showing me the way. It's always been a bit of, I'll try that because that feels right right now, um, and it's resulted in this kind of path. So, yeah. Um. So my PhD supervisor was Professor Yvonne Perry, and. Yeah, she was really good for me. But, you know, she was a, a strong woman, um, you know, kind of head of pharmacy at Afton, and quite inspiring for me in the sense that, because I, yeah, I didn't really have role models to kind of look at when I was growing up. So, uh, she, yeah, I think she was a good example for me, you know, to kind of be like, you can be strong, you can be confident, you can kind of drive your research. And, and she had the right approach and I think you know what Tom was saying about the fit between kind of your personality and your supervisor is really important so I think I wouldn't have because I didn't have a lot of confidence I think had I had a supervisor who was kind of breathing down my neck like every week or something I would have found that quite difficult but I think she gave me a lot of space like a lot of time to develop my ideas, to think about things, you know, to mess up some experiments, to, you know, to get some bits wrong. And, and it wasn't like a big deal, you know, if I had like two months worth of no results. And that was really, um, I think that was really good for me. Like, you know, I have to have that relationship with my supervisor. Um, I'm still very much in contact with her. I'm still very, very kind of, I feel very obligated to her like for kind of the opportunity that she gave me because I think I didn't have a master's on, on on paper I don't even think I should have probably passed that interview but you know she saw something and um yeah I'm you know and I think finding the right supervisor really matters because obviously she believed in me a lot more than I believed in myself at that time mm. and I think that matters um and in terms of inspiration <coughs> now um, I'm very privileged, I think, to work with some of the greatest scientists in, in the UK and, and sometimes have to kind of, you know, take a look, look around at who I'm working with. And my friends sometimes still laugh at me and they're like, I haven't caught you out yet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, um, so yeah, um, and there's, you know, strong women scientists, you know, the ones who design the vaccines and, you know, drive these uh, things forward. It's still a bit, um, I don't know, disappointing is the word, but, you know, we st I still don't see the, you know, other people around me that look like me, do you know, I don't see those kind of role models and, and I think, I think that would help, you know, it would help people, you know, from those kind of backgrounds to kind of take science and, you know, um, that's the only, that's the only, I think it would be nice to have more kind of inspirational role models that are, are from similar backgrounds, you know, maybe. Um, I think that would help. Amazing, thank you. Does anyone want to add anything else there? Okay. Um, so I think that's probably a good point to open up to audience questions. How did you address your imposter syndrome? Because it can be so knocking when you're knocking yourself. Um, and what, like, what really supports you in that? I think um, it's, it's not just imposter syndrome, you know. 
I don't know that that's the right word when you come from ethnic minority backgrounds, you know, if you're black or, you know, from South Asian backgrounds, um, if you're from deprived areas, if you've gone to poor schools, you know, where you haven't had people tell you that, you know, you're good, you know. It, so it's not just imposter syndrome, it's actually real, isn't it? Because you've never had someone tell you that you can make it, you know, you, you, can, you, know, you need to speak up. Um, how... I wish I had an easy solution for you um, and I have to be honest right because depending on where you take your career paths you know if you go to in, if you go into fields where you don't see people from similar backgrounds in, and have you know you'll you'll experience more knocks on the way <laughs> you know you'll 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 have people that'll say to you you know you're not going to make it or they won't speak to you in the right way or you you'll feel that you you know you've had you'll have racist experiences that maybe will knock you a little bit more. How do you get there? You just kind of keep your head high and just keep, you keep moving forward, right? You don't let people knock you down and you just keep keep moving forward. Um, and I don't have an easy solution for that because I wish I could, I wish I could go back and tell my 20 year old self to be as confident as I am today because I feel like I wasted a lot of time not believing in myself. Um, and I think that's one piece of advice I'd like to give you is you waste a lot of time when you when you don't believe in yourself, you know, because you don't need others to do it for you. You kind of just have to do it for yourself. Um, so I think I first came across it when I was um, an undergraduate student. So, um, you know, in, in school, I... I did work very hard, but I was, you know, as a clever kid, um, did, did well in my GCSEs, my A-levels, was in top sets and things. And then you arrive at Oxford with 200 other people doing maths who are all as smart, if not smarter than you. Um, and that was certainly um, a shock. Uh, and I think it is for most students arriving in, in such an environment. Um, and the way I sort of, I think, dealt with it then, and I think has sort of carried me through, was always to think, well, first of all, I have the exact same qualifications as everybody else. They might appear more confident or might appear smarter than me or whatever, but, you know, if you just like, almost like factual data, I have the same exam grades as everybody else that's here. So like, you know, sort of reminding yourself of these things can help yourself, I found, um, to, to sort of be a bit more confident. Um, and then also for me, it was thinking, well, even if they are all smarter than me, I will be the hardest working person here. And that's my way that I'm going to bridge that gap. If I felt that there was a gap there, it was like, there may be all of these people smarter than me, they have better ideas than me, but no one will work harder than I do. And I kind of use that as like a way to sort of drive um, and build up my confidence through that by working very hard, knowing that that was a way to bridge this gap, possibly imaginary gap that was in my head, but still it felt like a way that I could actively do something to try and bridge this imaginary gap? Um, I just want to add that it was probably imposter syndrome that made me leave engineering. Um, and it took, it was only really recently that I realised that that's what I had experienced. Because for many years, um, you know, forging a career in media, I told myself that I was actually going down this career path because I'm a better fit for it and all of that. 
And only, I have a podcast now where I invite women to speak about their experiences in STEM. And um, it's only through those conversations that I realised that I um, didn't deal with my imposter syndrome back then. Maybe if I'd had conversations about my imposter syndrome back then, I would have found a way to stay in the industry because I really loved what I did. Um, And so uh, have conversations about it. Get honest about what you're really feeling because when I was going into work every day, Um, and I was surrounded by guys, and guys would say to me, um, so what kind of modeling are you doing today then? You know, I didn't, I thought that that was acceptable, but today I just, I would learn how to stand up for myself, and I would learn how to deal with comments like that that are inappropriate, but I didn't have those tools back then. Um, So I would tell my my younger self, to find out what's appropriate and what's not appropriate um, and what you should put up with. I mean, we're having these conversations today, you know, more and more. Um, But, you know, when I started my podcast four years ago, I kept all the women on my my podcast anonymous because they didn't want to talk about how, what it was really like. Today, you know, it's on YouTube, you know, we see who they are, we hear what they've got to say. Um, so times are changing, but, you know, don't let that imposter syndrome be in you, eating you alive, you know, like let it out, let that cat out of the bag and, and kind of give it airtime, because uh, that's the only way to shrink it. With science communications, I imagine you have a lot of like, information coming out and you have the first of all time, so how are you able to It's an acquired skill. Uh, when I first, um, I, when I started in media, I started as a researcher. Well, I actually started as a runner because back then we used to use tapes and we had to run tapes all around London. Um, everything's digital now, so you don't need to do that. But um, I worked my way to a point where now I can pick out the main points, the points of interest, we call them hooks, you know, what, what do people want to know? You know, usually I'm asking the question, um, how is this gonna affect others? Because people, you know, they might want to hear about research, but really everyone is consuming information because they want to know how it affects them. Um, so there are various things that we learn um, along the way of how to package um, science in a way that's engaging and relevant and um, you know I, I like to keep things fair because sometimes you know research can be biased for whatever reason and yeah so it it's a skill that takes time and um, you know I feel like media has become an industry where you kind of learn from from others I mean 
you know, in my career, I've gone from doing a lot on TV to doing a lot more on digital platforms because no one watches TV anymore. And so a lot of um, new people coming into the industry, they do things in their own way. So maybe you have a way of, you know, there, maybe there are things that really interest you in science and packaging it in a way that is interesting to you might engage loads of people and you could go viral, you know. So I don't even want to give advice on, on um, how to package science and tech because uh, I think, you know, we are living in a time where um, individuality is kind of key. Um, but my general rule is, uh, if it doesn't make sense to my mum, who's not an engineer and isn't scientifically inclined, if I can keep my mum engaged in what I'm saying, then I'm doing my job well, because she's the type of person that will flick channels, never watch science, and generally get bored quite quickly. So I'm always, whenever I'm talking on TV, I'm always talking to my mum. I think that's, that's an important point about pitching it to someone outside of your like, scientific circle or your friend's circle who might not be. Yeah, that's a really good thing to pitch as somebody, usually a family member, who wouldn't normally be interested in that thing. How would you explain it to them? Um, we also used to use like, a few um, key questions when summarizing which pieces of research we were going to select for the, for the radio show. Um, so generally, you'd want one or two sentences describing what it's about. And like, it's quite hard to describe a whole research paper in one or two sentences, but that helps you to synthesize what are the key things in this. Um, you want to highlight what's new, like what's new about this particular thing. Um, what, why should people care about it? Which I think links into what you're saying about how's it going to affect somebody specifically. Um, and then the final uh, question that was always asked in all of our pitch meetings was, um, would you tell your mates about it at the pub? because you want someone to read your content, listen to your content, watch your content, and then want to tell somebody else about it. And they should be able to do that based on how you've summarized it and described it. So they were kind of like the, the sort of four things that we'd always ask or try and summarize about a piece of research. So can you do like a one or two sentence summary? What's new about it specifically? Like why right now is this a thing? So what's new? Um, why should people care about it? And then ultimately, would you tell your mates about it at the pub? Um, so that was kind of what I was taught to do, and I found that to be quite a helpful set of guidelines in general as a starting point. Okay. I think I understood the question, which is, do you need a PhD to kind of go into industry um, and what kind of skills? Um, so in my field, um, which is kind of vaccine research, um, um, and one of the reasons I did a PhD is to kind of progress in your career, you, you, you kind of hit a, like a, a ceiling if you don't have a PhD, um, so you can't really take on kind of senior roles. However, actually meeting people from industry, you realise that you can actually build up your career within industry without necessarily having a PhD. So there's some great scientists out there actually who are doing amazing research that might not have a PhD, but I think in general, having the PhD what you know for academia it's almost like a must but I think for industry it's not so much but having it gives you kind of like a kind of that platform to kind of progress more quickly I think up the career ladder to kind of more independent projects um, and things um, 
because I think because oh, I was a research technician and I worked for somebody I didn't want to be that person I wanted to kind of drive research so if you want to be kind of driving things then having that qualification doesn't make you the great a great scientist but it gives you that edge to kind of go into jobs that might give you those opportunities um, within industry I think in my field um, it definitely gives you an edge I would say Okay, another question, another one? Yeah, I can wait for So, I guess, probably those people related to it, there's like inside lots of different fields and stuff that I enjoy. So, I don't want to do like postgraduate research or something similar to that. It's kind of hard to sort of narrow it down to one area to like dedicate yourself to. So, I don't know how you have advice or something like that. Is it? There's like master's degrees now that kind of allow you to do like four different projects, right? So that you could kind of... Doctoral training programs. Yeah. I believe is the technical term. Oh, okay. If you've heard of doctoral training programs, um, so, or DTCs, DTPs um, is the acronym. So I believe, yeah, um, I didn't do one of these because they sort of, I think, became quite mainstream just after I started my PhD. Um, but I think the way they work is you do the first year of your PhD, you go around and sample like four or five different projects and they can be in reasonably spread out different fields, um, especially if you're um, doing, I don't know, if you're doing something like within the medical division, I feel like you can really spread out what you're doing. Um, and then after that one year, you then decide which specific project you're going to focus on for the next three years and that becomes your PhD. So there is kind of like a try-before-you-buy element to those particular programs, which sounds like it might be very helpful if you're not yet sure. Um, something else I, I might add is um, looking for uh, interdisciplinary projects is also really good. Um, so for me, I knew I wanted to do fluid dynamics because it was the course I enjoyed the most throughout my degree. I did it in second year, third year, fourth year. Any options to do with fluids, I was picking them because I just the more I studied, the more I enjoyed it. So I knew I wanted to do fluids, but I didn't know like, you know, what particular area of fluids I really wanted to go into. So when I heard about this um, project, which had an experimental element, there was I did some field work as well. Um, there was a theory aspect to it. It was working potentially with uh, oceanographers um, and, you know, sort of geography and environmental science was kind of built into it as well because of the rivers and the oceans. It just felt like there was a lot of different things there that could be brought into the project. So to me, that kind of appealed to me because it wasn't just like, let's study this one very specific algebraic space and see what happens. It felt like it was more of a real world problem which meant you could bring in lots of different ways of looking at it. Yeah, I would want to just add that um, with... I want to talk about all the other things around a doctorate research project because um, whatever you choose to do, um, there are so many other skills around that four years or whatever you spend um, that are really important for the rest of your career. So um, kind of the detail of what the actual research project is, is really important. But once you get onto, once you start your, your doctoral research, 
Um, it then becomes about everything else because you know you are going to have times where you are completely frustrated and fed up with your research, um, or you know you're completely elated because something amazing's happened. You know you go through your ups and your downs, and that will happen regardless of what subject you pick. Um, so I think it's important to establish like what area you want to specialize in. Um, but also never forget about all the other things around it um, because you are getting this qualification ultimately to further your career and furthering your career um, doesn't just rest on what you researched it rests on so many other softer skills um, you know like how you relate to your co-workers and you know things like that so I just think um, be careful not to get too... Because that's what happened to me. I got very narrow um, into it. Like, I was just so focused. And I then sorted all the things I needed to have uh, a career going forward after my doctorate. And actually, four and a half years of being laser-focused on something isn't such a great thing. Like, it's good to be well-rounded once you qualify. Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I have any more really much wisdom to kind of add to what's been said. Um, other than to say that sometimes your PhD, your PhD doesn't restrict your path after your PhD, if that makes sense. And, you know, kind of picking up on what you, you learn a lot of skills. So, for instance, you know, I did pharmaceutical sciences, but I'm very much in immunology now. So it's about the skills that you've gained and then apply, you, because it might be during your PhD that you actually learn where you want to go, what you want to do. It might be a certain element of your project that you did maybe for a couple of weeks that you think, actually, this is the bit I'm interested in and not the rest of it. So I think that's the only thing I'd say. I'd say is even if you, know, you do a PhD that you're interested in and you had a good time, but it's not the career path, you want to go on a different one, I feel like the skills that you gain through it should get you to where you want to go in the end as well. Can I just add that my title at the beginning of my doctorate, I can't even remember what it was, um, what I applied for, because what it ended up being was something completely different. After year one, uh, we realised that we couldn't, we couldn't prove that hypothesis because um, we were not accounting for the fact that one of the major influences on the, the fluid dynamics in an enclosed space is the sun. And so a lot of my research ended up being how do we simulate how the sun moves around an enclosed space? And that wasn't what I signed up for. <laughs> you know, so there has to be um, an openness to adaptability. And it's a great skill for your career as well. Thank you. Um, do we have any other questions? Yeah. So, in my mind, the PhD program is a research program, and that probably entails a lot of time spent in labs, experimenting, and computing things. But what would a PhD in something like applied mathematics or theoretical physics look like? What would that be like day to day? Um, I spent a lot of time in the lab. <laughs> I was in the Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics Department. 
Um, but I had colleagues who, who weren't. Um, so I had some friends who were in the pure maths department and, and the research there is you, you sit down and you try and prove something and you might try four or five different ways of trying to prove it over a one month period or something and you get stuck and you get frustrated and then you try a different way to do it and maybe you eventually realize you can't prove it because you made a wrong assumption right at the beginning. Um, so it's, it is kind of just sitting down and thinking a lot. So some of my friends who, who worked in um, pure maths PhDs, they said most of their work was like, you know, walking around the grounds of the maths department in the afternoon, just like letting their mind wander. And then you'd have that kind of like breakthrough of, oh, what if I tried this way? Or what if I, you know, you sort of get your inspiration um, from doing that. So I feel like it is literally just sitting and thinking. Um, if you go down the really sort of pure maths route or theoretical physics route, uh, and a lot of reading, because you're going to get those moments of inspiration, the more stuff you're exposed to. So the wider you can read, you might spot things that you can bring to your particular problem that you're trying to focus on. Um, so for me, I really enjoyed the fact that, because um, mine ended up being maybe like half experimental, half theoretical. Um, so I did experiments and got data, and then I created a mathematical model to try and explain what I was seeing in the experiments. Um, so I enjoyed the fact that I could sit and think about the equations and try and figure out what I was trying to do. Um, and then if I got stuck with that or got frustrated, I'd go down to the lab and just spend four hours doing some experiments. Or if I got fed up of doing experiments in the lab, I could go and sit in my office and think about whatever equation I was trying to solve or model I was trying to come up with. Um, so for me, I appreciated the variety of it. But if you went down a very theoretical or pure route, there isn't much you can do except read really widely and just have conversations with people and just sit and think. What did you do first? What I, I, I think I enjoyed both. I, for me, it was the variety. It really was the, the variety that was key. Um, I think I would have got bored if I had to sit and think for four years. And I think if all I was doing every day was being in the lab repeating, I did the same experiment 600 times over like a two year period. So, because you could do about three of them in a day. Um, so I think I'd have got very, very bored if that was all I was doing. So for me, being able to move between the two um, was important. But that wasn't something that I realised at the beginning. I just kind of, I sort of picked something that I felt had enough variety in it that I could keep myself entertained and engaged. Thank you. Any more questions? before I applied for my PhD um, with the supervisor, because I only applied for one PhD properly. Um, and it was a male. And I went to speak to him, and he asked me to kind of just talk about myself. And this is actually a true story. And he said, you have kids. And I said, I do have kids. And he's like, I don't think you're going to be a success in this department. You know, he said, we need people that are really committed, can work late hours, can do weekends. And he's like, I don't think this is the place for you, right? So straight away I realised, actually, it's not the place for me because I would have been very unhappy had I been in that kind of environment. And when I did actually talk to the PhD supervisor that I had, 
it was a completely different experience and I felt it straight away, you know, so I, I, th I don't know if this is a correct answer, but I feel like you have, like you've got instinct when you kind of meet somebody and you know that you're going to get on with them and you know that you're going to be able to respect them. I can't respect someone who thinks that a woman with kids is unable to apply themselves, right? But I can, I can respect someone who can look at my CV and think, you know, this person has potential. So I think my answer to your question is, I think you'll know when you start speaking to a few different supervisors and you'll have that kind of comparative experience. And I would probably suggest you do that, I think. Yeah, um, definitely meet any potential supervisors. Um, so just email them, say, I'm really interested in your research, I want to apply for a PhD position. You know, ask the question, do they have any um, like funding available or any spots available? Because sometimes these things won't be advertised and it's not until you approach somebody that they then say, oh yeah, I could probably take on another PhD student. Um, and from my experience um, and from talking to other people in, in similar sort of when they were applying around when I was, um, the majority of people will be very, very happy for you to like come and have a chat. You know, so you might have to make a little bit of effort. So like when I went to meet with Paul, um, I actually I had to take the X5 bus, the four hour bus from Oxford to Cambridge, which is just really painful. But you know, I got up early on a Saturday morning, took this bus, got there at like 11 a.m. and then we went and had lunch and we just got on really well. And it was just immediately obvious. Um, I'd, I'd submitted my application like a month earlier um, and um, through the main university system. But I'd already emailed him to say, can I put you down as my potential supervisor? Because you have to fill it in. At least when I was doing it, you had to put down a potential supervisor. He was like, yes, of course. Also, we should obviously meet and chat about this. I'm back in Cambridge in a month. Come and see me. Um, and I think that the way to see how well we got on was like we met on the Saturday. And on Monday, I had an email from the university offering me a place. So he would clearly said to them, I've met with Tom. He's great. Let's do it kind of thing. Um, and then the other way, um, so, so what you're looking for in the traits from your supervisor, and you kind of hinted at this before, it depends on you as a person. So for me, if I had somebody, um, so some of my office mates, um, their supervisor was like, we have weekly meetings, you have to complete this work by this particular deadline. And they both liked that because they felt it kept them motivated and they knew what their next goal they were working towards on a weekly basis. I would have hated that. Because for me, it was usually Paul sticking his head in and saying, Tom, I haven't spoke to you in three months, everything okay? And I'd be like, yep, good. I'll let you know when I've got something to talk about. And he'd be like, fine, I trust you know what you're doing. Um, so that worked for me, but I can see situations where that would probably be quite terrifying for some people, having that kind of relatively hands-off approach. Um, and there are some supervisors who um, are just too busy to meet with their students. That's always something to be aware of, the, the sort of bigger name and more famous person that they might be. Often they have, like, you know, they're spread so thin that it's often very, very difficult to get meetings with them, even if you're one of their students. Um, so that's something to bear in mind. Um, other, I guess, thing I used, um, I applied for two PhDs here in Oxford um, in the fluids department with my two favourite lecturers. So I'd seen them teach, they taught a course, I really enjoyed it, and I thought, they seem like they'd be interesting and good people to work for. So I ended up applying for projects with them sort of off the back of that. So if you, you know, if people have online videos or you've been to see people do talks or events and you felt like they seem like a, an engaging, interesting person, then that can also be like a good thing to, um, you know, maybe to look for and 
yeah, it's how you match as a person, I think. I think it's also really interesting when people um, do PhDs because they are truly fascinated about a topic. Um, and, you know, often people, well, not often, there are some PhDs that just uh, evolve out of, like, this absolute need to take research into a certain direction. And some of the people that I've met through my work have those kinds of stories where they say, you know, this kind of research didn't even exist, this kind of thinking didn't even exist. But I read a book there, and it's to do with like the cross-pollination of ideas. I read a book about uh, neuroscience, and I read a book about uh, artificial intelligence, and then I wanted to make, you know, brain-computer interfacing or whatever. Like, sometimes you can be that missing link. Um, because an academic has inspired you and then you know you can reach out to them and just say I'd quite like to do some research on you know so I don't know how it works in the system because I'm not in it but I love those projects that like come out of nowhere you know just a, an idea um, and then you end up working with someone that you really like and then beyond your PhD you know the innovation keeps coming because you know you, you're just in this kind of dynamic with someone where you're just bouncing ideas all over the place and just you know you're you're creating progress so yeah I think I think I'd just add as well just you know because where I work there's quite a lot of PhD you know PhD students as well um is that the concept of projects evolving it really happens where you find just that little thing in that project that really interests you and that's the thing that you're going to really that's where you're going to focus like a chapter or two chapters on because that's what that's what caught you at the whole thing and I think a good supervisor would let you do that would kind of let you explore um, the routes that you want in that project as well and I've seen that happen and I think it really does produce like a really great thesis because there's a lot of passion in it Mm -hmm. Great, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your experiences. Um, before we finish, we have an audience who is considering to do postgraduate research. Um, very quickly, what would be the one piece of advice you would give to them? I already gave you mine. Pick the supervisor, not the project. But maybe that's a personal thing, but from people who I know who didn't like their PhDs, it's usually because they didn't get on with their supervisor for whatever reason, not because they didn't enjoy their project. It's way more likely that it's because you didn't get on with your supervisor. Um, I would say if you're going to do a doctorate, um, do it because you really want to contribute to the body of knowledge in that subject, not because you're doing it for the... For any other reason, um, I think you invest a huge amount of time in something and um, it's not an easy thing to do and uh, the love of the subject really has to be at the core. Um, yeah, so, 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 you know, choose to do a doctorate because it's in here rather than up here. Um. I'm going to say, don't, don't be afraid to wait, I think. I mean, I think if you're unsure, 
you could always go and work in the area that you're interested in. Um, for instance, you know, where I work, people sometimes come and work for a year, you know, as a research assistant. And some of those people do go on to, to do PhDs. And some of those people realise that this is not the thing for them. So I think... Um, I know it's easy to be on the escalator of education, of you know, getting your undergrad, getting your master's, getting your PhD, but I think it's important to remember that, that that doesn't have to be the way. You can take a year out, you can go and work somewhere, you can, you know, there are lots of different ways to do this. You could always go back and do your PhD um, after you've had a bit more life experience and when you know what you want um, in terms of the project. Um, that I think that's something I've learned more in where I'm working at the moment because I see, you know, people come in in interviews who say I want to do a PhD I just need a bit of experience but they'll do a year and then you sort of, then they'll realize about themselves that actually I don't like you know maybe this isn't for me so that's why Brilliant. thank you so much and uh, thank you all for your questions and thank uh, the three of you for your uh, insightful inspiring uh, comments today uh, let's give the speakers Thanks for listening and please do subscribe to this podcast and maybe even rate and review it if you can. The more ratings and reviews, then the more interest from those trusty algorithms, which could help to increase the reach of this show. And you can watch the video recording of this conversation on YouTube on my new series called Esteemed. It's all about self-discovery, self-evolution and inclusivity on innovation. Let's all strive to be in the best versions of ourselves and celebrate others being themselves too. As always, be kind and loving and I wish you all a great week.